All right. Well, we are continuing our six-week series on the matter of we are family. And what is it that Whitneyville Bible Church needs to be thinking about and doing? And what is it that we need to be um, implementing into our church so that we are able to be the church that God intends us to be? And two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that we are being spirit-led. That's a continual, ongoing process of allowing ourselves to be spirit-led, led by the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at the fact that we are unconditionally loving God and others. Who is my neighbor? Who will I show the love of Christ to? And this morning, we're going to be looking at this statement, we are glorifying God with our thoughts our words, and our actions. And as we think through this process, as Dave read earlier in the call to worship and talked about, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever it is you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 19, specifically this morning, as we allow ourselves to take a look at what God's word has for us and what God intends for us this morning, let's look at Psalm 19. It should be a familiar passage, at least the first part of it um, should be a familiar passage to you. But as we read through here, Psalm 19, verse 1 says this The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's have a word of prayer as we take a look this morning at Psalm 19. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for each one of us. And Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to examine a text of scripture. Father, help us to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to live as you desire us to live. May we be able to say, as the psalmist says here in verse 14, that everything we think, everything we say, and ultimately everything we do, may it be pleasing and may it be acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. This particular text of scripture, again, has 
several different components that are familiar to us, or at least they should be familiar. Probably you know or you have heard verses one through six uh, as we think about creation declaring God's glory. And, and you've kind of probably seen the segment of verses seven through 13 when we talk about uh, the fear of God and, and the, the statutes of God and the law of the Lord and all the things that we think about with regards to who God is and what his word is and how it functions within our life. And you probably are familiar with verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But I wonder how many of us have actually put this whole thing together because these aren't three separate components that are just random thoughts all tied together into one big chapter with no continuity. There's actually a consistent theme that is going to flow through this. It's all it's driving us to verse 14. Verse 14 is what we're what we're ultimately trying to do, what we're ultimately trying to accomplish. Verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 13 inform us, they inform the application of verse 14. There are some commentators who believe that this particular text of scripture, Psalm 19, was actually written on two different occasions by two different authors, that they believe it was actually two different separate components that somehow when they were piecing together uh, scriptures, they kind of put these two components together and, and just kind of went with it. There are many other scholars who actually believe this is all continuous. It's all part of one continuous thought. I would agree with the latter, which would say it's all part of one continuous thought. And, and if you've looked at this passage before, you may be tempted to say, well, oh, I can, I can see how one through six seems to be its own segment, and I can see how seven through 13 seems to be its own segment, and then there's like verse 14, which is just kind of a nice verse, and so let's quote that verse and not really think about how this is all tied together. But the reality is, Scripture here in Psalm 19 is going to flow perfectly into verse 14. And so that's what we want to look at this morning as we think about this idea of we are to be glorifying God with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And this will ultimately tie us back to the first message. We are being filled with the Spirit. In other words, we could look at verse 14, which we will, and we could say, you know what, Whitneyville, let's just try really hard this week to say and to think and to do the right things. Let's, can we just try really hard this week? And we would all probably say, yes, we'll try really hard. And what's gonna happen? You know full well what's gonna happen. You might not even leave the parking lot of Whitneyville Bible Church. And a thought, a word, or an action will be violated. And you think, I really, really wanted to try. I really, really wanted to do this. How, how do I do this? Well, we do it by the filling of the Spirit, by God's Spirit working in and through us. All the songs that were sung this morning are tying us into that idea that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that is allowing us to do this. In other words, Dave Dietz will never, never, ever accomplish Psalm 19 on his own. I won't. I'm just, I'm just gonna tell you, it won't happen. And any time Dave Dietz does fulfill Psalm 19, especially verse 14, is evidence of the Spirit working in me. Because there is a war that is going on in all of us. The war of the Spirit versus the war of the flesh. And as Paul would say, the, the things I don't want to do, doggone it, that's what I wind up doing. 
at the things that I do want to do, I can't seem to do those either. So how do we accomplish this? It is accomplished, as we looked at two weeks ago, through this process of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But Psalm 19, 1 through 6, Psalm 19, 7 through 13, are going to inform us about the application of Psalm 19, verse 14. So let's take a look at this. God's two means of communication. What are God's two means of communication? As, as God is communicating to this world, as God is communicating to mankind, he has chosen two major components of communication, two ways that God communicates to us. God communicates to us, first of all, through creation. God communicates to us through creation, and God communicates to us through his word. It is these two means of communication that God is going to give to us information that we need. And as we look at this this morning, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, is going to describe the communication of God through creation. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 13, is going to describe the communication of God through his word. And that is going to collectively inform us about how we fulfill verse 14. So let's look at this. Verses 1 through 6. Creation proclaims God. That's the big thought about verses one through six. Creation proclaims God. And quite honestly, we could, I don't know, get five or six or 10 messages out of this particular chapter. We're gonna try to hit the top of this as we skim through. We're driving our way to verse 14. Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. First thought you need to know is this. Creation exclusively proclaims God. Creation exclusively proclaims God's glory and majesty. One of the greatest things for us to see is the beauty and the magnificence of God as we see it in all of creation, but especially as we see it in the sky. Wasn't it this week, I think... uh, I don't know, Thursday, Wednesday, sometime, I haven't slept much since then, uh, that people posted on Facebook the, the rainbow and all of the beautiful imagery that is created. Even in the midst of a storm, we, we are seeing creation. We're seeing the heavens declaring the glory of God, the sky above proclaiming his handiwork. It's interesting that the psalmist begins in verse one by pointing us up to see the heavens, to see the sky above, John Calvin said this, when a man from beholding and contemplating the heavens has been brought to acknowledge God, he will learn also to reflect upon and to admire his wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth, not only in general, but even in the minutest parts. Let me say that again. When a man from beholding and contemplating the heavens, has been brought to acknowledge God. He will learn also to reflect upon and to admire his wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth, not only in general, but even in the minutest parts. What's scripture teaching us? What's Calvin kind of 
coming to the same conclusion as when we begin to look at the heavens, we begin to look at the glory and the magnificence of God as seen in all of his creation, but in, in the heavens and in the, in, in the sky that is above us and all that is entailed there, we begin to realize we can now look at every component of his creation and see his wisdom, see his power displayed in the minutest parts. We could just stop and think about all of creation and how all of creation is screaming out the glory and the magnificence and the majesty of God. But the psalmist is reminding us in verse one, the only thing creation proclaims is God. Creation is not hypocritical. Creation is not duplicitous. Creation doesn't say, oh, you know what? I think today I'll proclaim God, but tomorrow I'm gonna proclaim something else. The only thing creation can proclaim is God. Second of all, in verse two, creation eternally proclaims God's glory and majesty. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The language of the Hebrew as written here means it's going from one right into the other, right into the other, right into the other. In other words, they're not two separate components. It's not like, oh, well, this is the day and this is the night and they don't have anything to do with one another. The Hebrew language is written saying one flows into the other who flows into the other who flows into the other who flows into the other. In other words, night and day are harmonious in their communication and proclamation of God's glory and majesty. The verbs actually here in verse two are written in the future tense, meaning that creation will always continuously proclaim God. This isn't past tense. Creation did at one point in the past. Day to day poured out speech in the past and night to night revealed knowledge in the past. This is written in the future tense, meaning this will always continuously be the case. Creation eternally proclaims God's glory and majesty, but then he goes into verse three and he gives a caveat that may baffle people, but if we understand the process of God's communication, we understand what verse three is talking about. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So people may come to verse one and two, and especially verse two, and say, oh, oh, okay, well, are the, I guess the trees are gonna talk to us. I guess we should, we should probably go on a hill and just meditate and listen for the, for the speaking of this. Verse three reminds us, we're not talking about verbal language. This isn't you know, the Wizard of Oz. We're not waiting for the trees to talk to us. But creation is proclaiming the glory and the majesty of God. All of creation, the only thing it can ever do is proclaim God. It will always proclaim him for all of eternity. Creation is displaying and proclaiming the majesty and the glory of God, but not in actual words. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. But then he picks back up in verse four and says, well, let's talk about their voice. Again, as you look through this, you may say, well, this was really confusing. You talk about their speech and you talk about proclaiming God and then you say there is no speech and then verse four, he goes back into let's talk about their speech. Again, we're talking about the proclamation, not in words, but in the creation and the glory and the majesty of our God. Verse four, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
letter C in her outline, creation extensively communicates God's glory and majesty. All of the earth, the end of the earth, there is no place on earth God's glory and majesty is not being proclaimed. This is all gonna tie into, and in like four weeks, we're gonna look at, we are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is all gonna tie in ultimately to that concept. But creation across all of the universe, across all of the world, is proclaiming extensively, proclaiming God's glory and majesty. All of the earth is included to the ends of the earth. There is no place that is left out. Then he says at the end of verse four, in them he has sent a te- set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So within creation, now we are seeing an example here of the sun. And you say, well, why is, why is the sun being highlighted here? Obviously, we would say the sun is very crucial in creation. The sun is very crucial to our existence. As Myron alluded to earlier, in Michigan, we have a great appreciation of it because apparently it doesn't like to show itself here all the time. But the sun here, as God is communicating through his word, the psalmist is reminding us what the sun does. The the creation has been set as a tent for the sun. And it's like a bridegroom. It comes out leaving its chamber like a strong man. It runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. say, well, what's the point of this particular phrasing? It's this. The psalmist is driving us to think about these things. Creation is great. Creation is magnificent. Creation proclaims God exclusively, eternally, and extensively. There is no place that creation is not proclaiming God. The ends of the earth and all the earth are being filled with the proclamation of the glory and the majesty of God through creation. And in the midst of creation is the sun, which runs its circuit, and it it covers the whole earth, and it, it is powerful, and it's wonderful, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. What the psalmist is really driving at is to think about and to compare this concept of the sun versus all of the people, all of the civilizations who have worshipped the sun. The psalmist is trying to remind us that, yes, the sun is great. The sun is wonderful. Nothing is hidden from its heat. But the sun has its place. The sun is not the exclusive premier concept of creation. God is. And for all of those civilizations who before us have worshipped the sun god, the psalmist is reminding us you missed the point entirely because all of creation is pointing not to the sun, it's pointing to God. And creation is proclaiming the majesty and the glory of God. The psalmist now bridges us into verse 7 And really is driving us, even in those first few statements in verse 7, to think about as great and as wonderful and as awesome as creation is. And it is. I've been allowed to be in some amazing places, as I know many of you have. To see some just awe-inspiring beauty and glory and majesty of creation. 
And the psalmist is going to remind us as we transition into verse seven that creation is amazing and creation does what the creator designed it to do, but it is inferior to the second form of communication of God. It is inferior when it comes to proclaiming God. Well, what is it inferior to? It is inferior to the word of God. The second means of communication is the word of God. And the psalmist is going to go from verse 7 through verse 13 to describe to us all of the wonderful things about the word of God and how the word of God communicates and how the word of God infiltrates and how the word of God changes and how the word of God affects us. There is much that is being said today by people who say, God speaks to me. And I understand. I understand that many times what they mean is the Holy Spirit's work in their life or the communication of God through his word. God's only two means of communication are creation, general revelation, and the word, specific revelation of God's word. God is not speaking to us in an audible voice. He has already spoken to us. And the psalmist here in verse seven is going to say, in creation we see the the power and the majesty and the glory of God, and that's awesome. But let's talk about something that's even better. As awe-inspired as you may be by creation, may you be even more awe-inspired by God and his word. So verse seven Second major thought this morning is this. The word proclaims God. This is specific revelation. If you want to get into bibliology and revelation of God, general revelation is creation. Specific revelation is the word of God. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. The psalmist uses here in verses 7 through 10 some interesting language to describe the word of God. So let's take a look at what the word of God does. Verse seven, the word of God, God's word is what converts us. How am I converted? I can look at creation, the, 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 the tribal person in the middle of the jungles can look at creation and Romans is gonna remind us that he is guilty Because creation is proclaiming God. Creation is pointing him to God. Creation is telling him he didn't create that. Someone else did. But creation doesn't change my heart. What changes my heart? What converts me? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. We're reminded of this in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, right? Salvation comes by hearing, 
And hearing, Romans says, comes by the word of God. In other words, what do people need in order to be converted? People need the word of God. That is quick and that is powerful and that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing asunder of our soul and spirit and and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. All of God's word is allowing us to have conversion that we need. God's word is what converts us. Creation is magnificent. Creation is wonderful. Creation is beautiful. But creation doesn't convert us. God's word converts us. Second of all, in verse 7, he says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What is the second thing God's word does? God's word matures us. How do I go from being the simple fool to being the wise person? Creation doesn't do that. God's word does that. How do I become a mature person? How do I become a mature believer? I am investing my life in the word of God. You're getting scripture given to you. You're getting messages preached. You're getting words proclaimed. And, and what happens here on Sunday or, or what happens in a Bible study connected to Whitneyville Bible Church is great or, or a Bible study that you may get. But it is your daily engagement in the word of God that brings about maturity. So you can say all day long that you are a mature Christian. There is a direct correlation between your maturity and your time spent in God's word. If the only engagement you're getting with God's word is here on a Sunday morning or wherever you may go on a Sunday morning, then you are not going to be the mature believer that God has intended you to be. Because the psalmist is reminding us that the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes the wise those that are simple. It's what matures us. It's what enables us to grow in our Christ-likeness. That's why we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, All scripture is given by God and is profitable. For what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Creation doesn't make me mature. God's word makes me mature. God's word is what takes me from being the simpleton to being the wise. Verse 8 The third aspect of the word of God, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's word is what encourages us. Do we need encouragement? Yeah, we probably do. Seems like every day, this last two weeks, has just been what can happen today that was worse than yesterday, and then let's double that and report that. We need encouragement. Where do we get it? Fox News is not your source of encouragement, sorry. CNN, MSNBC, you pick whatever channel you want. That is not your source of encouragement. If your source of of input into your head is Facebook or Instagram or any news show or any TV show, I can guarantee you today you are probably not encouraged. But it is the word of God that encourages us. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. I'm to the point where I don't know if I trust anything on social media or the news or anything, because you just don't know. 
wasn't there. I didn't hear it. You probably have an agenda and you're probably spinning it. Everybody. God's word is right. It's true. It's just. It rejoices the heart. The fourth aspect is the second part of verse eight. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. God's word is what informs us. God's word is what allows us to be enlightened. We looked a couple of weeks ago when we talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit that the work of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate us. As we read God's word and as we seek to understand God's word, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is illuminating us to the truth of his word. But it is God's word that is the source of that truth. It is the source of that knowledge. It is that source of enlightenment. It is God's word, which again is going to always be in direct um, harmony with the work of the Holy Spirit. Because these three people cannot contradict one another. The Holy Spirit is only ever going to point us to the word of God. It's going to illuminate us to the truth of God's word. It is God's word that informs us. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We live in a world where we feel like we're groping in the darkness. We don't know what's happening, what's going on, where we're going, what's taking place. And we're like blind people who have blindfolds on, trying to figure our way through life. How do we have wisdom? How do we have understanding? How do we have the ability to function in our world today? It is through God's word. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fifth aspect of God's word is it is eternal. It is eternal. Good, we got it right. God's word is eternal. 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. Well, what happens to the grass? The grass withers and the flower falls, fails, falls. I can't see. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. What will endure? Fox News, CNN, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want to pick and put in there will fail. They will come and they will go. This, in whatever manner you want to wrap it in, this will abide forever. This has been around from the beginning when God began to speak and God began to communicate, and it will be around to the end. God's word is the only thing that is going to eternally last, that gives us the wisdom to be able to become wise when we are simple, to be able to have a heart and a soul that is revived through the word of God, to be able to have the word of God inform us and encourage us. The word of God is eternal. But second of all, in verse nine, God's word is trustworthy. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. The only thing you can trust is God's word. You can't implicitly trust me. I'm a frail human being. I have a sin nature. You can't implicitly trust everything I say. You should hopefully be able to do that because I'm living my life the way God intends me to live. But the only thing that is perfect, 
The only thing that is true and righteous altogether is the word of God. The only thing that you can trust for the faith and the confidence you need to live your life is the word of God. So the psalmist then moves us into verse 10. This is the natural conclusion in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's like the psalmist is going, this is your light bulb moment. This is the no duh moment. If we're living in a world where we can't trust anything, where we don't know what's happening, where people are fools, where people are not wise, where people need their hearts to be revived or souls to be converted, if they need encouragement, if they need something to trust, where should we go? And the psalmist says, well, where, like, where, else, where else would you go? How do you navigate this world? How do we teach our kids how to navigate this world? We better be instilling within our children, driving them to scripture to navigate this world. One of the hardest things I'm dealing with, I had this little bit of conversation, but as a parent, I'm ready, we're, we're ready, I guess we're doing this together, we're ready to launch a child out into college. And there's a part of me that goes, oof. That's a, are, you, are you ready? Do you, you got what you need? And I think we had this conversation the other day. I think. If not, we should have it right now. <laughs> the place that I want my kids to go is to God's word. That's what I want for them. At the end of the day, I don't want them to tell me, Dad, I... I, I saw this on this news channel or I saw this on Facebook or I saw this on this social media. I want them to say, dad, here's what I found in God's word and this is the driving force that will give them solid confidence in their life. Because at the end of the day, this is the only thing that is trustworthy. And that's what I want. I want to know, as we had this conversation the other day, I believe, I want them to know that their default is to say, what does God say about this? That's a difficult thing. That's a challenging thing. God's word is trustworthy. And the psalmist concludes here with these points seven and eight when he's talking about God's word. God's word is valuable. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. I don't know what gold is currently selling for. It's a lot. People desire gold. It's valuable. It's Worth a lot. And the psalmist says, more valuable than gold is God's word. If somebody came to you and they say, you know, I had an ultimatum. You could have a pound of gold and never again have God's word. Or you could have God's word and never have a lot of money. The Sunday school answer, right, is, well, oh, yes, we would, we would take God's word. But I really don't know if that's actually the case across the board in American Christianity. I really don't know that the majority of American Christians would say, you know what, you could give us a thousand pounds of gold and we would still reject it in order to have God's word. That's why as scripture reminds us in Psalm 119 verse 72, the law of your mouth 
is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Again, it comes off as the Sunday school answer. Oh, yes, I, <laughs> we're in church. We're supposed to say it's God's word. Is there a point at which somebody could offer you enough pounds of gold that you would say, oh, I think I know enough of this. I've memorized a few verses, so um, I'll take you up on that offer. My fear is that in American Christianity, we're not that far away from people saying, I'll give up on this. Oh, offer me security. Offer me confidence. Offer me sustenance from somebody else. Oh, I'll take that. And you know what? I'll reject God's word. Is God's word described as verse 10 true in your life? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is valuable. But then the psalmist reminds us in verses 11 through 13 that God's word is protective. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who could discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. What keeps us living a spirit-filled life? What keeps us driving ourselves to obey God's word? What enables us to live as God desires us to live? It is God's word. We're reminded of that in Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. How shall a young man keep his way pure? Well, how does he do that? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, do not let me wander from your commands. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The problem in American Christianity is that there is a drastic absence of a knowledge and understanding of God's word. We come, we sit, we listen, we nod. Sometimes we say amen, we get up and we go. We checked our box, we did our thing. And the sad reality is we do not have a grasp, an understanding, and sometimes even a desire for God's word. And the psalmist says it's more valuable than gold. It's sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. It keeps us from sin. It declares us uh, how we should live. It, it keeps us from living a life that is dishonoring to God. It, 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 it doesn't allow us to go the direction that is contrary to God's word. It drives us to what God wants. So the psalmist has reminded us, creation is declaring God. It's declaring God's glory and majesty. It's declaring it exclusively. It's declaring it eternally. It's declaring it extensively. And the psalmist has reminded us that God's word is what converts the soul. It's what matures us. It's what encourages us. It informs us. It is eternal. It is trustworthy. It is valuable. It is protective. And then we come to verse 14. And if we're not careful, we go, oh, well, that's a cute verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Kind of like the, you know, cherry on the top, and that was really nice. Throw some sprinkles on there and go our way. There's a purpose for verse 14. Verse 14, the application of verse 14 is being informed by the preceding 13 verses. 
What is, the, what is the, the application of verse 14? As we play this out, as we live this out, as we think through this process, why was verse 14 tacked on to the end of verses 1 through 13? And it wasn't really tacked on there. It's there intentionally. Well, remember, what's the big arching theme of chapter 19? It's the proclamation of God, the, the, the communication of God. Creation communicates God proclaims God's glory and majesty. Creation communicates God's glory and majesty exclusively, eternally, and extensively. And then we have the word of God. The word of God proclaims God. How? Well, it converts us. It matures us. It encourages us. It informs us. Is it valuable? Yes. It's eternal. It's trustworthy. It's valuable. It's protective. Now we come to verse 14 and we say, well, what was all that about? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here's the third major point. I must proclaim Christ. Creation proclaims Christ. The word of God proclaims Christ. Proclaims God. I must proclaim Christ. God. In other words, this isn't an option. I don't sit there and go, oh, well, you know what? You have God's word and you have creation, so you're probably good. I am part of this process to proclaim God. You say, well, how do I do this? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Where do the words of my mouth come from? The words of my mouth come from the meditations of my heart. So we begin there with that second statement, actually not the first one, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. We begin with the meditation of my heart and we say this, it begins with my heart. How do I proclaim God? It begins with my heart. Well, how do I, how do I teach my heart? My heart is informed by God's word. That is what I use, that is what God uses to work in my life. What makes me a wise person and not a simple person? It is God's word. What converted my soul? It is God's word. What brings maturity in my life? It is God's word. What encourages me when I'm discouraged? It is God's word. Will this last forever? Yes, it's eternal. It's trustworthy. It's valuable. It's protective. And so I come to this and I say, okay, I'm I must proclaim God. How do I do that? I need to first begin in my heart. And I begin in my heart with the word of God to allow the word of God to change my heart and to shape it and to mold it as God intended. Mark 7 verse 20 reminds us it is that which is from within that defiles us. It's not that from without. So I can't say, well, you know, I don't really have good thoughts about God right now, but you know, it's not my fault. It's actually, you know, CNN. I watched them last week and now I'm just angry. Fill in the blank. I really don't care what outlet you want to use. The Bible said it's not CNN's fault, not Fox News's fault, not Facebook's fault. It's your fault because you put into your heart stuff that isn't going to take care of your heart. What takes care of our hearts? The word of God takes care of our heart. 
So what do I fill my life and my mind with? I must fill it with God's word. Why? Because it converts the soul. It matures us. It encourages us. It informs us. It's eternal. It's trustworthy. It's valuable. It's protective. None of those things apply to any media outlet you ever want to choose. I don't care. Take whatever extreme you're on politically. None of them are fulfilled this way. So it begins with my heart which is informed by God's word. And as Mark has reminded us, it is that which is from within that defiles us. Proverbs 23, verse seven, reminds us as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You put stuff into your heart, that's what's gonna come out. It's like a tea bag, right? I could say all day long, this is, and I'm not a tea connoisseur. I could say all day long, hey, you know what? This is Earl Grey tea. And you drink it and it's hot chocolate. What can you be guaranteed? It wasn't Earl Grey tea. It was hot chocolate in that tea bag. What we put in is what we're going to get out. God's word being put into our hearts and lives is going to bring out from us things that glorify God. God's word has allowed me to be a mature, spiritually discerning, and encouraged believer. But then letter B, it is seen through my mouth, which follows the pattern of creation. This is how these two things are tied. Remember, we started at the very beginning, verses one through six. Creation proclaims God. How does creation proclaim God? It proclaims God exclusively, eternally, and extensively. The word of God converts us, matures us, encourages us. It's trustworthy, it's valuable, it informs us, it's protective, all those things that we put together. So my heart needs the word of God to be brought into it so that what comes out which is just simply a demonstration of what's inside, what comes out is going to be proclaiming God and all of his glory and majesty. So someone who has vitriol coming out is somebody who's not allowing his heart to be changed by the word of God. Someone who has lack of faith coming out is someone who's not allowing God's word to change his hearts. So as I allow God's word to change my heart, my mouth will follow the pattern of creation, which is what? I proclaim God exclusively. The only thing I proclaim is God. We say, well, that's gonna be hard to do. Yes, it will be. I don't know that we'll ever arrive there until we get to heaven. But in the process, what should we be striving for? The only thing I wanna proclaim is God and his goodness, and his majesty, and his glory, and all of who he is. That when I get poked, God comes out. That's our goal. That's what we should be striving for. So that when I am poked, God comes out. I'm exclusively proclaiming him. I'm eternally proclaiming him, no matter what's happening, no matter what time of my life I'm in, and I'm extensively proclaiming him everywhere I go. The word of God and all that the word of God is informs my heart, which proclaims God just like creation does, exclusively, eternally, and extensively. That's my goal. And just for the record, I haven't gotten there. But that's what being filled with the Spirit does as we allow the Spirit to work in and through me. You could tell me all day long, Dave, just try really hard this week to proclaim God. I guarantee you, I won't make it out of this parking lot. Neither will you, actually. It is 
God and his word that changes me. It is the indwelling filling of the Holy Spirit that enables me to proclaim the glory and the majesty of God exclusively, eternally, and extensively. And what's the ultimate goal? (laughs) From a human standpoint, the ultimate goal may be to say, hey, we succeeded this week. I didn't say anything bad. I didn't say anything, you know, that I shouldn't have. I, I, I had all good thoughts this week. I did a good job. And right there we fail. Because the goal is what? To be acceptable, to be pleasing to God. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The the biblical theology of sacrifice is always when sacrifice is done properly, when sacrifice is done as God intends, it is a sweet-smelling aroma. It is a a fragrant offering. It's, It's like when you're cooking and you make something and you're like... That's good. Whatever that is for you. That's, mm, that's good. God is the same way. When our thoughts of our hearts and the intents of our hearts are pleasing and glorifying to him, when the words of our mouth and the actions of our life are pleasing and glorifying to him, God is sitting there going, that's good. That's pleasing. That's acceptable. In other words, God is always to be the object of why we do what we do. Not to sit here and pat ourselves on the back and say, I went five days. Five days, I didn't have a bad thought, I didn't say a bad word. God's word changes us. God's word comes out of us. That sacrifice of our heart, our mind, and our mouth on the altar is a sweet smelling savor and aroma to God. What should Whitneyville Bible Church strive to do? Our goal should be to say, I will sacrifice my depraved, wicked, fleshly intentions, and I will allow God's word to change me and to mold me and to mature me and to shape me so that the words of my mouth and the actions of my life are acceptable and pleasing to God and God alone. If Woodneyville Bible Church did that, I think we would be in stark contrast to many other believers, unfortunately. And yet even that goal is not to say we're better than other people, but our goal is to say, God, may you be pleased. May our thoughts, our words, and our actions be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. When God takes a whiff, if I could be crass, when God takes a whiff of Whitneyville Bible Church, is it a sweet, fragrant aroma to him? Is it like, that's good? Or is it like, wow, that's not good? Do the thoughts of my heart, the words of my mouth, and the actions of my life bring honor and glory to him? Are they acceptable and pleasing to him? All of creation proclaims God exclusively, eternally, and extensively. By God's word working in my heart, I must do the same thing.
proclaim God exclusively, eternally, and extensively. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Help all of us. All of us have opportunity to work in this area. And Father, may you allow us to do what is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.